Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service of West Houston Bible Church. There are a couple of announcements that I want to reinforce. First of all, there is a, an orientation this afternoon for those who are going to be baptized uh, on September the 9th. Now, on September the 9th, the baptism will be held at uh, Grace Bible Church, which is located a little bit north of Willowbrook off of 249. That's where David Dunn is a pastor. And there is a map that will be out in the foyer on the table out there so that you can find your way there. Now, I will encourage all of you to be in attendance because this is good for you to witness such an event, and it's also encouraging uh, to those who are there. I think that uh, the last couple of years as we've been in Israel and done baptisms there, it's been a, a real encouraging thing for, uh, for every, everyone. If you have some questions about baptism, uh, I covered it in some detail in the Hebrews uh, series in Lessons 58 through 61, so you might want to review those lessons. On Saturday, September the 8th, the Ladies' Prayer Brunch group will resume their meeting after the summer at 10.30 a.m. here at the church, so bring a sack lunch and uh, they'll provide beverage and dessert. Imagine that, dessert at West Houston Bible Church. <laughs> you never want to miss that. Uh, one other point that is important for today is that immediately following the service, before the orientation for those who are getting baptized, there will be a short announcement and explanation by uh, Doug Daly and Doug Carn. Uh, you don't want to miss that announcement. All right, before we begin, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as a body of believers. We recognize that we have a unity in Christ that far surpasses anything that we quite comprehend or understand. We are all one together in Christ, and we are members of the same body. We are to gather together corporately as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to worship you in the highest form of worship is to understand your mind, your thinking, your will, and this is expressed to us in your word. And, Father, it's also vital for us to express our praise and thanks to you in various other forms of worship, such as singing and giving. So this service is dedicated to your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our first hymn. It's on the inside front cover. Son of God, you now are seated. Please stand. Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness and your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no living man is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have, been, who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. 
I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs to you as a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who would afflict me. For I am your servant. Every person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ understands something about the concept of grace. Because at the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you recognize that salvation is something that was totally provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. Something that where he did all the work and you simply receive it. And to the degree that you are able to understand the dimensions of God's love is exhibited at the cross, you are able to understand the grace principle. And the grace principle is the dominant principle in the church age. It applies to all aspects of the Christian life, and it applies to all aspects of ecclesiology. And it specifically applies to the entire uh, doctrine of grace giving. Giving is based on our own soul appreciation for everything that God has done for us and provided for us. It is a barometer, as it were, of our own uh, grace orientation. Giving is a way in which we express our gratitude for the way God has provided good, sound teaching in the local church. It's also a means for uh, indicating our support and providing support for missionaries and evangelists and those who are involved in full-time professional ministry. Uh, scripture says that as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together. Father, we're so grateful that you've provided so much for us. All of our clothes, all of our uh, living arrangements, uh, our cars, everything that we have is from you, and we are materially blessed as a nation far beyond any other nation. And yet, Father, that we recognize that it's our responsibility to give back some of that which we've received as a token of our appreciation. And it just indicates our own appreciation, gratitude for all that you have done for us. We pray that you would bless these gifts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared. Scripture teaches us that when we sin, we grieve and we quench the Holy Spirit. These deal with different aspects, of course, of carnality. But when we do that, it breaks down, it ceases, it uh, ends the ongoing sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. It stops it for a while until we again get back in fellowship. While we're continuously indwelt by the Spirit and we can never lose our salvation, sin does break our fellowship with God, and it stops our forward momentum in spiritual growth. So when we confess our sins, as Scripture says, then God forgives us our sins, that which we mention, and cleanses us from all other sin. Now, that's grace. We don't have to remember we don't every sin. You don't have to get involved in a lot of contemplation, trying to go back and think of every single sin that you've committed since the last time you confessed your sins 17 weeks ago. <laughs> so some people think that. I mean, I've, I've, uh, I read a critique of... Uh, Confessionism, as it was called on the Internet the other day, and, and that's what, how it was expressed by this, apparently how it was taught, that you have to think of every single sin. If you leave one out, well, you don't get forgiven. But that's not what the text says. It says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, same word referring to the same sins we just confessed, and then to go on and, forg- and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that at that instant we're restored to fellowship and we recover the ongoing filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer for you to uh, deal with any sins that you need to, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it refreshes our soul to come to a place where we can be involved in corporate worship, to sing praises to you that reflect deeply and profoundly upon your work in salvation, your work in history, and your ministry in our lives. Father, as our attention focuses on the eternal reality of your attributes and your presence and upon the eternal truths of your word, We recognize that we are created for a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify you. That purpose is related to an ongoing rebellion that occurred and began in eternity past with the rebellion of the creature Lucifer, Halel ben Shahar, and will go on into the future and finally be resolved during the great tribulation when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, fathers, we continue our study of these things. May we be encouraged by them because it is a, a way of focusing our own attention on the very essence of sinfulness and rebelliousness, and it is a way for us to understand and see how this sin has crept in to even our own thinking. We pray that we will be open to the teaching, ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning, and his application in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our study of Revelation on Sunday morning, we have taken a pause to do a topical series on the angelic conflict. The angelic conflict is crucial for understanding the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgments of God, the judgments of the Lamb during the 
time of the tribulation because ultimately this involves the angels. As I pointed out again and again the last few weeks, angels are mentioned uh, numerous times in the book of Revelation, approximately a third of all the references to angels in the New Testament are in the period of the tribulation, which tells us that to understand God's plan and purposes for the future tribulation and what is accomplished there, we must locate it within the broader understand, the broader scope, the broader doctrine of what we call the angelic, uh, angelic conflict. Some refer to this as spiritual warfare, but spiritual warfare is actually a dimension of this entire doctrine. And one of the important things about the doctrine of the angelic conflict is it will help you understand why God created man, why God created the church, what God is doing in the church age, and more importantly, the role of your spiritual life within this overall framework. It ties together many different strands of doctrines and pulls together in your own mind a greater understanding of, of why you are here and what God expects of you. Now, the last few weeks we've been looking at the origin of the angelic conflict with the fall of the creature that most people refer to as Lucifer originally. After the fall, he's referred to as Satan. Prior to the fall, we have, as I pointed out last time, Isaiah chapter 14, we have a reference in verses 12 to 14 to Lucifer. That comes out of the Vulgate, the Latin translation that was made by Jerome in the 4th century A.D. And in the original Hebrew, it simply is, is the term Halel ben Shahar, or the shining one, son of the dawn. And, of course, Lucifer has as its root the idea of, of light. And Second Corinthians chapter 14 talks about how Satan appears as an angel of light. So we pull all these different things together. God doesn't always say everything about everything in a, when he makes a reference to it. It's left to the uh, church, to the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, pastors, students, theologians, to study these things and begin to uh, make these connections. God has revealed his word to us in this way because if he just wrote a systematic theology, we would read it, discard it, and go on, well, we mastered that. But by revealing the word the way he has through Old Testament narrative, poetry, New Testament epistles, it forces us throughout the whole course of our lives to get into the word, to think about it, to meditate on it. Every time we get into it, we see new insights. We start putting things together we didn't see uh, before as having, having relationships, and we come to greater and greater understanding of the word. So last time we looked at the passage in Isaiah related to the fall of this creature, Lucifer. Now, there's two key passages in the Old Testament that are thought to refer to the fall of Satan. The other one is the passage we're looking at this morning, and that is in Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. So turn, turn with me there, and I'll just remind you of the core of Lucifer's thinking at the fall. That's described under the five eye wills we looked at last time in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. He began by saying, I will ascend into heaven, indicating the highest of the heavens. There are three heavens in the scripture. The first heaven is the atmospheric heavens of the earth. The second heaven would be the universe itself beyond the earth's atmosphere. And the third heaven is the throne of God. And he's saying, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God, as we pointed out last time, is a reference to the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. And there I pointed out that the term there in the, in the Hebrew refers to the assembly on uh, the Mount Zaphon. And this is an allusion to, to all of the angelic hosts in heaven. And he will rise above them in authority. And I will ascend upon the heights of the clouds. Again, an allusion to uh, to God here, that he would be above God. Clouds are often associated with the presence of God in the Old Testament. And finally, in conclusion, he said, I will be like the Most High. The basic claim of Satan in arrogance was that the creature could rule things and run things as well as the Creator could. In his arrogance, he thought he could do it better than God could. That's what he wanted a chance to do. And somehow he managed to uh, convince a third of the other angels to join him in this rebellion. This arrogance caused him to be, uh, first of all, to be completely uh, oriented and just consumed with his own abilities, his own powers. He was uh, totally uh, focused on all that God had given him. He lost that perspective on the fact that what he had, all of his abilities, all of his gifts, all of his talents, everything that he had, came from God. It did not originate within himself. So he was completely self-absorbed, and in that self-absorption, it led him to a self-deception. We see the whole uh, panorama of the, uh, the arrogant skills here. It led him to a self-deception that he thought that he could do what God could do, which indicates something about the extent of the knowledge and the power and abilities that, that this creature has that he had a vast amount of intelligence, a vast amount of power, a vast talent and ability far beyond anything we can possibly imagine. This is why he is so dangerous and why he is able to do so much that he does. And in his uh, self-absorption and self-deception, he then began to justify his own actions when God accused him And so that is the outworking of the angelic conflict in relation to proving that he is completely wrong in his assertions that the creature can't do what only the creator can do. Now, Ezekiel chapter 28 gives us some further insights into the dynamics of his fall. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, these passages in Ezekiel, this chapter in Ezekiel, fits within a context. And as I've pointed out so many times in the past, it's always crucial to understand the context of any particular passage. You just don't go in and pull that right out and say, okay, this refers to the fall of Satan, because then if you go back and read it, you might go, hmm, how do you get Satan out of there? His name's not mentioned at all. It doesn't mention Satan, the devil, Lucifer, anywhere in Ezekiel chapter 28. So how do you get there? And I pointed out the last couple of weeks that there's been this trend among evangelical scholars following their liberal, uh, their liberal brethren, so to speak, their lib- liberal uh, comrades in scholarship, to reject a, a reference to Satan or Lucifer in these passages. Now that's more so with the Isaiah 14 passage than it is with the Ezekiel 28 passage. But nevertheless, there are many that 
reject this as being a reference to Satan as well, and I'll make some comments with regard to that as we go through our, our study. Now, if we look at this chapter, it fits within the second major division of this uh, prophetic book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 25 through chapter 32, there are, there are consecutive divine judgments announced upon Gentile nations. And so in the middle of that section of judgments on Gentile nations, there are three chapters which focus on the destruction of Tyre. And Tyre is located in modern Lebanon. It is to the north and a little bit west of Israel on the coast. Here is a large map. I thought we would start off with a broad panorama where we could see where this is located within the ancient world. To the north up here we have modern Turkey, which was the empire of the Hittites in the ancient world. To the south and west you have Egypt, Egypt, the southern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Then to the west, excuse me, to the east you have the area that became dominated by the Babylonian kingdom and Assyria. This is the area of modern Iraq. And uh, ancient Assyria covered areas of both modern Iraq and modern uh, Syria. Tyre is located over here on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this gives you a modern map of Israel, locates Tyre just to the northwest of Israel, north mostly, but I say west because it's right on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. It is located about 23 miles north north of Acre or Akko and is about 40 miles or so or 20 miles or so south of Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were considered major Phoenician uh, centers throughout most of the ancient world. Tyre itself is mentioned on many ancient inscriptions and it was probably founded not long after the Noahic flood. Herodotus would locate the date of its founding approximately 2700 B.C. Others would put it about 2500 B.C. So it's not long after the worldwide flood of Noah where the grandsons or great-grandsons of Noah would have founded this port city at Tyre. Here's a little closer look. It's not that far from the northern part of Israel. If you look on the map here, you have the uh, on the map. It's called the Sea of Kinnereth. Actually, it's not a sea. It's a lake, and it's Lake Tiberias, Lake of Galilee. A sea is a saltwater body. This is a freshwater body, and it's just up here to the north. Here is Laish or Dan, and here on this ridge line, we have Mount uh, Hermon, which is the northernmost part of Israel. And just off to the to the west, we have the area known as Lebanon. Very close uh, proximity to the northern border of, of Israel. Tyre is mentioned in Scripture as early as Joshua 19.29, where it is referred to as the fortress of Tyre. It was well defended. It's mentioned in Egyptian, Assyrian, and Greek records, and as each of these empires uh, spread out through the ancient world, they all had to deal with this fortified city at Tyre. It was one of the most powerful city-states in the ancient world. It rose to great prominence. 
in, in the ancient world, uh, colonists going out from Phoenicia, specifically from Tyre and Sidon, uh, were uh, sent all over the Mediterranean. They founded colonies all around the Mediterranean. You could even say that at one point in the ancient world, the Mediterranean was just a uh, Tyrian lake. They pretty much owned and operated and controlled everything on the Mediterranean, just as it was said not long ago that Britannia ruled the seas in modern history in reference to England. In the ancient world, Tyre ruled the seas. They had a merchant marine that was involved in taking uh, goods throughout all of the ancient world, and you couldn't trade internationally on the waters without dealing with the merchants from Tyre. This led to tremendous wealth in this particular city, the wealthiest of the ancient world, and they would rather uh, they would rather get involved in commerce than fight. They weren't known for military power. They built a defensive fortification around Tyre so that they would not be they would be protect themselves from invasion. But they preferred to pay tribute to other empires rather than to get involved in fighting. But when it came to fighting, they did a, a tremendous job of protecting uh, themselves. They were the first nation to navigate and map out the Mediterranean, and they established colonies throughout this area. The the area around the Mediterranean is referred to as the Levant. They established colonies in the Aegean Sea. They had established colonies in Greece. One of their most famous colonies was was Carthage on the northern coast of Africa, which was founded in 815 B.C. They also founded colonies in Sicily, on Corsica, where Napoleon was from, uh, Tarshish in Spain, where uh, Jonah was trying to flee to, was a uh, colony from from Phoenicia, and also Cadiz in Spain was originally founded as a as a Phoenician colony. They their sailors went outside the pillars of Hercules there at the Straits of Gibraltar and went as far as uh, exploring the coastline of Africa to the south. Uh, Western Europe to the north, and some even think that they made it as far as the Western Hemisphere. Their navies, their ships dominated the seas. Uh, Biblically, they are important, especially in the time of David. During the time of David, about 1000 B.C., Tyre and Israel entered into an alliance that uh, continued for about uh, 200 years or so. This came about because David was responsible for defeating the Philistines. The Philistines were the major rival to the Phoenicians in the, uh, in the tr- maritime trade. And so once David defeated the Philistines and the Ph- Philistines were no longer a factor, then Tyre had a monopoly on maritime trade. And with the increasing growth of the uh, power of Israel under David and then under Solomon, the Solomonic kingdom controlled all the land trade routes, and the kingdom of Tyre controlled all of the sea routes. And so between Tyre and Israel, no one could do commerce without uh, paying tribute to them and without uh, cooperating with them. Hiram I became the uh, ruler of Tyre about 970 B.C., and it was in an alliance with Hiram 
that Solomon purchased the great cedars of Lebanon that were floated down the Mediterranean to Jaffa, and then they were taken overland to Jerusalem for the building of the temple. This was the first golden age of Tyre. Hiram's dynasty ruled Tyre until 887 B.C. when a usurper by the name of Ethbaal, who was the high priest of Baal and uh, Astarte, seized the throne. He's important because he's the father of Jezebel, and it is through his influence and the power of Tyre under Ethbaal, which brings in the second golden age of Tyre, that the worship of Baal and the fertility religions spread throughout uh, all of that area of the Mediterranean and specifically into Israel when Jezebel married Ahab, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. She brought her uh, priests with her, the priests of Baal, the priests of Astarte with her into uh, Israel and the northern kingdom succumbed to uh, the idolatry of Baalism and the fertility worship. We'll study a lot about that in, on uh, Tuesday nights. We've wrapped up or are in the process of concluding our survey of Genesis on Tuesday nights, and then I'm going to begin a series on the two, two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, and so we'll be spending a lot of time going through First and Second Kings, and I bet it's been a long time, if ever, that any of you studied First or Second Kings. So this will be a great opportunity to get into some, some Old Testament history. Tyre was an interesting city. It had, a, it had two sections to it. There was a mainland city, and then there was an island, a rocky island, about a half a mile offshore. And so this gave them a particular, uh, particularly uh, unique uh, way of defending themselves because they could leave the land city and everybody could just evacuate to the island and then they could uh, be uh, protected by water as well as the walls of the original city on the land and they withstood a number of, of sieges. Uh, following the death of Jezebel and the end of the house of Ahab, the political alliance between Israel and Tyre broke up. Tyre then became a, a, a target of, of uh, empirical uh, assault as the various empires coming out of the uh, Mesopotamian area increased. You had the rise of the Assyrian Empire, and then after it, the uh, rise of the Babylonian Empire. But they were not able to conquer or defeat Tyre. They hid out behind those walls for five years when Shalmaneser V laid siege to the city and they still weren't able to uh, be defeated. And then Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to them for 13 years and was unable to defeat them, and it was left to Alexander the Great to finally defeat them. And what he did was, uh, and it fulfilled prophecy from, from uh, uh, the Old Testament, is he came in, attacked the old city. Uh, everybody had to flee across, to the, across the water to the island, and then he decided, well, we have to get out to that island somehow, and so, well, we'll just take all the homes and all the walls and all, everything that they have here on the mainland, and we'll just uh, scrape down to the basic bedrock, and we'll just push everything out into the water and build a causeway out to the island. It was a tremendous, tremendous engineering feat, and he did it in about six months, and it fulfilled the prophecy that the islands would be, that, that tire would be laid bare, and only fishermen would dry their nets 
on the land. So today, if you go to Tyre, there's not an island there anymore. There's just the causeway that goes out to what uh, formerly was the island. When Alexander the Great defeated them, he captured 30,000 uh, Tyrians, and he, and he sold them into slavery. Another 15,000 were rescued by the Sidonians. 6,000 were killed in battle, and then Alexander had 2,000 crucified just to give you a little idea. But Tyre did not disappear. It continued to be of significance, and it's even mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament in Matthew 11:21 and in Acts 12:20. One of the things that made Tyre so uh, famous in the ancient world was not only its commerce and what its sailors did in terms of trade, but also what they produced. They were known for their textiles and their dyes. They were able to produce... Uh, a permanent dye that uh, would not fade or would not wash out. And one of their most expensive and most well-known dyes was a purple dye that was often used for royalty and to the dyeing of royal robes because of its value, because it was so so difficult to produce. Tyre was also known for glass. You're all familiar with Phoenician glass, one of the oldest forms of glass that we know of and various other products. So they were a commercial entity. Now, that's important for understanding the background and some of the things that are said and alluded to in our passage in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. Now, as we look at this context, chapter 26 describes the destruction of the city. This is where we find the prophecy related to the fact that they would be uh, completely destroyed down to the bedrock and Fishermen would just dry their nets there on the on the rocks. Chapter 27 addresses a lament. A lament is like a funeral dirge that has been uh, composed. And in verse 2 of chapter 27, we read, Now, son of man, that's a term that is frequently used in Ezekiel as God addresses Ezekiel. Son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre. Take up this funeral dirge. Over Tyre, it is a prophetic dirge indicating the destruction of the of the king of, of of the city of Tyre itself. And then chapter 28, we have two uh, lamentations, two funeral dirges. These are addressed to the leaders of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, verse 1, we read, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, Say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. So what we see initially is that there is an indictment of the man who is referred to here as the prince of Tyre. We have to identify who that is. He's identified as the prince of Tyre, and his core sin is arrogance. It sounds very similar to that which was expressed by the uh, creature, Halel ben Shahar, in Isaiah chapter 14. He says, I am a god. I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas. I'm over everything. So there is a, a parallelism. He is a man, and he is just as arrogant as the creature uh, Lucifer. Now, the word that is translated prince here is the Hebrew word nagid. These first ten verses address this prince or leader. The term nagid means a leader, a ruler, a prince. In a few passages, it is 
uh, used for a king. It's an authority figure. It could be a religious leader, a military leader, or a political leader. Often it is translated prince as distinct from the second word that is used down in verse 12, and that is the word king, or in verse 11. The first ten verses are addressed to the Nagid, the prince of Tyre. And then there's a shifting focus to this individual referred to as the king of Tyre, which indicates that two different uh, creatures are addressed in this chapter. They are not the same. They're, they're not, uh, it's not just a synonym that is being used for stylistic purposes. But what we have is the first ten verses is a condemnation of the human ruler of Tyre, who at the time was Ethbaal III, who ruled from 590 to 572 B.C. This was uh, roughly the same time as Nebuchadnezzar's invasions of, uh, of Israel and that particular area. Remember in 605 you have the first uh, invasion of Nebuchadnezzar when he took Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back to uh, Babylon. That was in 605 and about 593. There's another invasion uh, and deportation. Then in 586 there's the destruction uh, the conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction uh, of the temple. So this is roughly that same period in time from 590 B.C. to 572 that Ethbaal III is the ruler of the city of Tyre. But there is a shift. What we have in starting in verse 11 is a lamentation addressed to the king of Tyre. That is the power behind the throne the one who is really empowering the, um, the, the ruler. Now, there are some that want to uh, make an application, or it's possible that it is addressed to the king, is addressed to the king of Tyre is an allusion to Melkart. Melkart is the Phoenician name for the god Baal, the same person, Melkart and Baal. And there was a huge temple to Melkart. The center of the worship for Melkart was located in Tyre, uh, Melkart, the name Melkart means uh, the god of the city, and so this would be uh, addressed to him that Melkart, of course, is an idol, is a representation of Satan. This is what uh, Deuteronomy says, is that there are demons that empower the, the, this idol worship and these gods. They're not just imaginative, but there are, they are forces used uh, in the angelic conflict to distract people from the worship of the true God. So what we have here is an address in the first ten verse, verses to the human king indicting him for his arrogance, but that he is simply a reflection of a greater power, a power behind the king, and this is uh, the person we refer to as Lucifer or Satan. Now, it's not unusual in Scripture for God to address Satan through the creature he's influencing. We see that in Genesis 3, 14, and 15 when God is addressing Satan as he addresses the serpent. He addresses the serpent, but it's really applying to Satan who is the one empowering the serpent. When Jesus was informing the disciples about his crucifixion, Peter began to rebuke him and to say, Lord, this isn't going to happen. And so Jesus addresses Satan through Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. In another passage, um, 
uh, in this particular passage, the prince is described as a man and not a god, and one who is lifted up by pride, but he thinks that he is going to be a god. So there's a parallel with the fall of Lucifer in Isaiah chapter 14. So the indictment focuses on the arrogance of the ruler. The first two verses that we just looked at here talk about the fact that his original sin is a mental attitude sin. It's what he says in his heart, just as the creature in Isaiah 14 says in his heart, I will be like God. In verses 3 through 5, there are several rhetorical questions that are addressed to him uh, the king, uh, to show that he is not as wise as he thinks he is. He said, Behold, are you wiser than Daniel? Daniel, of course, is a reference to the prophet Daniel, who is the one who wrote the book of Daniel. And so it shows us again that Ezekiel, who lived at the same time as Daniel, is familiar with Daniel and what is going on in Daniel's life over in Babylon. Well, the other Verses down through verse 10 announce the judgment on the prince of Tyre. And then in uh, verse 11, things are stepped up a little bit. Now, when we get to verse 11 down through verse 19, that's the section that deals with the fall of Satan. Now, as I pointed out before, there are many people who say, oh, this, this really doesn't mean Satan. This, this, you can't apply this to Satan. You either have to apply it to a historical ruler. It was either just directed to Ethbaal III or it is taken from some sort of, of a myth that is then applied to the arrogance of the, of the rulers of Tyre. Now, one of the most interesting facets of this is that the descriptions of this particular creature, beginning in verse 12, can't quite fit the descriptions of a human being. They, they go far beyond a human being. For example, we'll t- look at this in a little more detail. He said that he's the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Nothing like that was ever said of Adam in the garden or of any other uh, human being. He's located in Eden, the garden of God, in verse 13. Well, where is that? When was there ever a human ruler that was in Eden? Uh, furthermore, the description that was given in verse 14, you're the anointed cherub who covers. So this is identifying this ruler as a cherub, and we don't have that uh, in relationship to human, human beings, and that this creature was perfect originally in the ways from the day it was created until sin was found in it. So no other human being is created perfect and then uh, becomes a sinner. So there's a number of things there that don't quite fit. Now, one of the best commentaries that I've used over the years on Genesis, dealing with the Garden of Eden, was written by a Jewish scholar. He was the head of the Hebrew department at the University of Jerusalem. His name's Umberto Casuto. He is uh, now gone. He wrote a couple of classic commentaries on Genesis, on Exodus. He never finished the Genesis commentary, got as far as Genesis 12, and that was in volume 2. So that would have been probably five or six volumes just on Genesis. He wrote a very short volume on the documentary hypothesis that was only about 90 pages long and has uh, uh, it's unsurpassed and it's never been refuted. In fact, scholars just ignore it because they can't deal with it. He was absolutely brilliant. He's not a, not a Christian, but he understood the Old Testament and he interpreted the Old Testament in a 
literal manner. He, he confirms many uh, what we would call Protestant interpretations in uh, opposition to the somewhat fanciful interpretations you normally get uh, from rabbis. And in his discussions of, of uh, Eden, and he relates it to Ezekiel 28 in his commentary on Genesis, he says, all of this testifies to the fact that in a remote period of antiquity, there was an Israelite saga. See, he doesn't have a view of inspiration like we have, but he, he does treat the Old Testament with respect. He says there was an Israelite saga that related how the cherub who dwelt in the Garden of Eden upon the top of the mountain of God, which was as high as the heavens, sinned in his pride against God, and as a punishment for his transgression, he was driven out from the Garden of Eden and cast down to the earth. This saga, therefore, belongs to the cycle of legends concerning the angels who were hurled down from heaven. And so here you have attestation from an unbeliever, Jewish scholar, who just deals with the text. And even though he doesn't give it any value in terms of divine inspiration, he recognizes it's legendary whatever he locates, the interpretation of Ezekiel 28 as referencing the fall of an angelic creature and these angels who were cast out of heaven. Now, when we get into the text, let's just go through a few things that we'll point out. Verse 11 says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation or a funeral dirge for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, this word seal is a Hebrew word, chatam, which has the idea of something sealed, such as when you would put wax on a, on a document and then put the impression of your signet ring on it. That would seal it. If it was on an envelope or a scroll, that would close it. So it came to be uh, to indicate something that was sealed up, that, that would not be opened again. And so idiomatically, this term, you were the seal of perfection, and the word for perfection there is the, word, the Hebrew word, tochnit, which indicates a plan or a pattern. In English, we have a saying that when God made so-and-so, the mold was broken. That's the idea here, is that, that, that he is the ultimate in God's creation. He is the highest creature in every category. He's described as being full of wisdom, chokhmah. He has greater intelligence than any other creature that God created, and he is perfect in beauty. His physical attractiveness, the glory of this particular creature is unsurpassed by any other creature. His intelligence is unsurpassed by any other creature. His power, his ability is unparalleled in any other creature. He is the greatest of all the creatures, and the only being greater than Satan is God himself, but he's still a creature. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. He, he, he can, his power is limited by the sovereignty of God. And his knowledge is still that of a creature. He is always learning. And we might say he is the first who's always learning, never coming to a knowledge of the truth. So he's full of wisdom and perfection. And then in the next verse, verse 13, we read... You were in Eden, the garden of God. 
Now let's just stop a minute and talk about that particular phrase. What in the world does that mean? Well, some have thought that if this is in Eden, then this must be referring to perhaps the fall of, of Adam. In Eden, this must be the Garden of Eden where Adam was in the Garden of Eden. But this is called Eden, the Garden of God. And if you remember Genesis 2 and our studies there, the scriptures indicate that that the garden was planted east of Eden and eastward of Eden. And Eden is the location on the earth of the domain, the habitation of God. And it seems that the earth at that time was very different from the earth that is described in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. This is one reason why I believe that Genesis 1-1 describes an original creation of an original earth and universe, and that when you come to Genesis 1-2, that the earth became without form or void, darkness was on the face of the earth, uh, or the face of the deep, then this indicates that something uh, catastrophic has occurred, something very negative has occurred, that indicates perhaps some kind of judgment. Judgment would be that the original earth was a place where God had established uh, an outpost, a a dwelling place. This was a habitation of the angels, and this was uh, a place where, where Satan... Uh, where Lucifer served uh, served God. Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, in the back of his book, In the Footsteps of Jesus, has an appendix on the abodes of Satan, which is done very well, and I agree with uh, uh, just about everything that Arnold says in that particular particular chapter. I'm not so sure about one of his speculations, though. He thinks that this this early earth was a gym-like environment because of the mention of the stones here in Ezekiel chapter 28. I'm not sure you can go that far, but there certainly is an emphasis in this passage on various gems and precious stones. So the, the only way I can put all this together is to say there's an original earth. There's a throne of God on that original earth, on the mountain of God, which is mentioned in the next verse that it is on this mountain that that Lucifer and the other angels worship God, and Lucifer in his pre-fall state is involved in this worship of God. Now, who is involved in the Old Testament in leading the nation of Israel in the worship of God? It's the priesthood. The highest of the priests, the highest of the Levitical priests, was Aaron, the brother of Moses. And Aaron wore a breastplate, uh, a golden breastplate, and on that breastplate were 12 stones, 12 precious stones for the, precious and semi-precious stones for the, each one standing for one of the tribes of Israel. Now, if you look at this list of stones in Ezekiel 28:13, if you read them as a Jew, you would see nine of the 12 stones listed here. So what you think of, the association going on in your mind is, well, that's like the priest. That's like what the high priest wears. And I don't think that's an accident because I don't think there are accidents in the plan of God. I think that there's an allusion here to a priestly role that the uh, pre-fall Lucifer had among the angels. He was responsible or he was over their worship. He was, as it were, the real worship leader of... Maybe that's why they said... J. Vernon McGee said that uh, when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. Well... There's another allusion to that in this verse. That part of his role is to lead the angels in worship and present their worship to God. 
So that seems to be indicated by these various stones. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. Now, some of these stones uh, and their specific identification differs from translation to translation because we're not dead sure on some of them. But they're the same words that are used in describing the jewels in the, and gems in the breastplate of the high priest. And then the last phrase says, The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now, if you're using a New American Standard Version or a New International Version, it reads a little differently. It reads uh, something along the lines of your so- sockets and settings. And uh, so we have to do a little Hebrew work here. The first word is the word tof, which refers to a tambourine, a small, shallow, single-headed hand drum, also called a timbrel. And this is not why we don't use tambourines in worship, because, you know, somebody's always going to go there, so you have to make this, this kind of comment. In fact, a lot of ancient cultures had, had percussion, because that's what it is, a percussion instrument, and it was used for punctuation. It's used in our culture. We're used to folk singers or rock groups, and everybody just beats the tambourine whenever they feel like it. And so there's no order or structure to it. But if you look at Japanese cultures or you look at other Asian cultures, and the, their use of these kinds of instruments is a very formal, structured uh, sort of way. So a lot of people, especially today, if you're under about 50, uh, you, you think uh, when Miriam used tambourines at, uh, at the um, foot of Mount Sinai singing praise to God, you get a totally... Uh, screwed up vision in your head as to what that looked like. Uh, it doesn't have to look like a bunch of rockers uh, in the 70s, okay? Uh, it's not this out of control, beat the drum whenever I feel like it attitude. It's in other cultures prior to uh, modern Western European culture, it was a very structured sort of use. The other word that's used there, translated pipes, is uh, nekev which indicates a tube that had holes in it. It was something that air would pass through. It's only used two or three times, and the idea is it's, it's a, because of the use of, of the tof previously, must be talking about some kind of musical instrument here, and it would be some sort of flute-like or pipe-like uh, instrument. And so the indication here also is that he was involved in music, and so we know from Job uh, uh, 38, 4 through 7, that the angels sang. So he was involved in music, and music is very much a part of the worship of God and very, very important. It's not just something we put in before a Bible class on Sunday morning just because that's what, what Christians have always done. It's part of the filling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, 19. So he was involved in the singing of praise to God, and this all indicates this priestly kind of ministry. Then in verse 14 we read, You were the anointed cherub who covers, identified as a cherub, a high order of angels associated with the presence of God, the righteousness of God, and the justice of God. It's called anointed, and the Greek, and, um, excuse me, Hebrew word there is mimshach, which is related to the core uh, root of MSH, uh, Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah, the anointed one. Some people try to make it say outstretched wings. It's only used this one time in uh, all of the uh, Hebrew literature, so there is some debate about its meaning, but its root seems to be that of Mashiach, 
the anointed cherub who covers, and that word is the Hebrew word sakak, which means to cover, to hide something, or to shield something, and uh, it's used to refer to the covering of the wings of the cherubim over the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. So this is a high role associated with the very throne of God, worship of God, the holiness and righteousness of God. And then the last phrase reads, you walked back and forth, you walked around in the midst of the fiery stones. Now, nobody really knows what that means, but these are apparently gemstones that, that reflected light, and so it was like fire, and it fits the pictures that we see of the, of the emeralds and the sapphires around the throne of God in Ezekiel chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4. So again, this is just a description of, the, of his closeness to God himself and his authority over the angels. Verse 15, we read, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. And this word for perfect isn't the word for righteousness or it isn't a typical word we would have for moral perfection. But when it is applied to God, it always does refer to perfect righteousness. And so it, the context determines whether it refers to someone who is simply upright, like Job, even though he was a sinner, he led an upright moral life. He wasn't perfect in the sense of flawless, but the word tamim is also related to God, in which case it would mean uh, moral perfection or flawlessness or would be a synonym for perfect righteousness. But in this context, notice, it's contrasted with iniquity. You were flawless or blameless until iniquity was found in you. So the context clearly indicates that the meaning of tamim here must be flawless perfection. Uh, The term avul, is often used in Scripture uh, to refer to an unjust person. It's used five times other than this passage in the Hebrew Old Testament. Four times it's used in Job to refer to an unrighteous person, and also in Zephaniah chapter 3, uh, verse 5, where it refers to the corrupted leaders of Jerusalem. In verse 16, we bring in the analogy of trade and mercantilism that was part of Tyre's culture. By the abundance of your trading... now. What kind of trading would Lucifer be doing? I mean, you didn't have trade routes and mercantilism in heaven, but what's the point of the analogy? What was he trading? He was the one who was bringing, as it were, as a priest, the worship of the angels to God. This is what he is doing. And what's happening is God's getting all the glory, and he isn't getting any. You know, they don't even say, yeah, you're pretty good too. So as he is involved in worship, it becomes something he's just trading on. And so this metaphor is used here. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. Mental attitude sins are at the core of Lucifer's fall. You sin, therefore, the judgment. I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. How can that apply to a human being? He was in the presence of God. He was on Eden, uh, in Eden, the garden of God. He is on the mountain of God, and he's cast out. And God says, And I destroy you, destroyed you, O covering cherub, uh, from the midst of the fiery stone. So that imagery is repeated again. And then in verse 17, again, a description of his mental attitude, sin. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor. You sold out. 
You traded humility for arrogance, obedience to God to disobedience, all because you thought so well of yourself. So I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. And that picks up that imagery from Isaiah 14 that that, that event actually occurs at the end of the uh, of the tribulation period when the kings of the earth have been judged and are in Sheol. And now this king of Babylon alluded to in Isaiah 14 is cast into Sheol and they taunt him. And then in verse 19, all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be no more forever. This is a final judgment, not a historical judgment, but one that occurs. Uh, Yet in the future with the final destruction of Lucifer. So when we go through this passage, we see that the things said of the king of Tyre can't be said of any human. No human was in the garden of God. No human was cast out of the mountain of God. No human could be called an anointed cherub who covers. No human fits any of this. This must refer not to the literal king of Tyre, but to the power behind the throne, the Amonas Greve. Now, in conclusion, let's just look at a little comparison of Satan with this king. This king is noted for his wisdom, but the serpent in Genesis 3.1 was the most subtle of all the creatures. Satan is known for his deceit and his hostility to God, as is the ruler of Tyre. Satan is a deceiver, as is the ruler of Tyre. He's an instigator of evil, John 13, 2 and 27, as is the ruler of Tyre. Satan seeks to be worshipped as God, as does the ruler of Tyre. He seeks to overthrow God, as does the ruler of Tyre. He appears as an angel of light, as does the ruler of Tyre. And as a result, we make this comparison and we see that the only creature that fits, the only way we can make sense of the passage is if it refers to the fall of Lucifer. We see again that it is arrogance that is at the core of all sin in the universe. And we as human beings fall prey to arrogance like Satan does too much. We want to follow Eve in her sin. She wanted to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that she could be like God. And too often that's what we want to do. We want to usurp God's role in our life rather than humble ourselves as Jesus Christ did to the point of obedience, even when that means the death on a cross. See, the application from this is that the following in the path of arrogance is following Satan, the originator of arrogance. And it will always lead to self-destruction. It is only when we are willing to follow the leadership, the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, and humble ourselves by means of obedience to his word, even though it costs us everything, yet what we gain is everything. Not, I'm not talking about salvation in terms of eternal life, but it gains spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, rewards, position, privilege at the judgment seat of Christ. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, to be challenged by the fact that we too often are dominated by our own arrogance, our own uh, self-deification, rather than being willing to humble ourselves to the point of obedience and even to death like the death on a cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this has to do with our own spiritual growth, spiritual life, but there are some here who don't have a spiritual life. They've never trusted Christ as their Savior Scripture says we were born dead in our sins. We were born spiritually dead, 
and yet there needs to be a rebirth. That rebirth comes only when we put our faith, our trust, our reliance upon Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Once we trust in him alone for eternal life, then at that point you impute to us his perfect righteousness, you declare us justified, you give us eternal life, and we will we are adopted into your family forever and ever. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would take advantage of this opportunity to do so now. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would be responsive to the challenge of this message. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.